Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We started off right now with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank Thank you for coming on today. Hey, anytime, Mike. Good morning. Okay, good morning to you. Appreciate it a lot. Let's uh, talk about the uh, booster shot situation in, in BC care homes right now. And you really were on uh, on the pre- feeling the pressure on this one yesterday in question period. We've seen some outbreaks of uh, COVID nineteen at care homes, notably the Willingdon Care Center in Burnaby. More than a hundred people caught COVID there. Twelve people have died. And critics say it shows the, the need, the urgent need for these COVID booster shots for long-term care residents. Let me play a clip here for you, Minister, of the uh, Liberal leader, Shirley Bond, uh, in question period yesterday. I'll get your thoughts. Here she is. Vulnerable seniors in long-term care were supposed to be getting their booster shots starting weeks ago. But when it comes to implementation, this Premier rolls out the plan and then fails to deliver. What we're seeing is a slow, overly bureaucratic, uncoordinated rollout, a patchwork across health authorities. Minister, what do you say to her? Well, she's incorrect on the facts. Uh, As of Sunday night, 62 care homes have been fully vaccinated. That we started, uh, we announced it on September 28th, the very day they they were approved to go forward by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. And we're moving very quickly to get those uh, shots done they're important because um, those of us who have family in long-term care care about this very deeply and they're important to ensure people are safe and so we're proceeding proceeding rapidly and the reason we have to proceed rapidly amongst other reasons is that we have an extraordinarily busy time it's not just long-term care we're currently providing uh, booster doses or completion doses the first round for about 130,000 clinically vulnerable people about coming getting close to half of those have already been done now as you know, we're expecting Pfizer applied yesterday to be starting doing children 5 to 11 in the month of November. So we've got to drive through these tasks, and that's exactly what we're doing. Well, Penny Bellum, the person in charge of Immunize BC, is doing an excellent job, and we're, we're driving our way through. Well when, you, well, when you say, Minister, that you're, you're moving quickly, you say you've, you've immunized 62 care homes with booster shots. There's over 300 care homes in, in the province. And the booster shot, as I understand, it's recommended about six months after your second dose. I mean, most people, residents of long-term care in B.C. started receiving their second dose back in January. So that's a lot more than six months ago. Well, the recommendation is at least six months. And it was made right. September 28th by the National Advisory Committee, right? And so we're moving uh, quickly to see that done. That's why we're uh, acting, as we have consistently through this, with urgency. We get supply. We get it into people's arms. That's what's happened from the beginning of the pandemic. And you bet that's what's happening in long-term care uh, because these issues are always urgent to us. But we haven't just done that. We were the first province in the country. A couple of them announced before we did. We talk about efficiency. We have uh, put in a mandate in our long-term care homes and assisted living homes for all staff to be vaccinated. That went into place last Tuesday. So that's in place. And all of the other actions we've taken in long-term care, and it's why 
the Seniors Advocate Report, and we've had, as you know, Willingdon is the latest example, like COVID-19 is vicious to people in long-term care. It's vicious to everybody, but particularly those in long-term care. Yeah, so we've consistently been ahead of the curve right. in terms of responding to the issues in long-term care. I care about them very deeply, Mike, and that's why well, we're doing that. The Willingdon Care Centre in Burnaby is a very stark example here. More than 100 people caught COVID and 12 people have died. Did the, did the residents at Willingdon Care Centre, did they receive a, a booster shot? Well, they have. But uh, again, when I, I would I would say last week, uh, Mike. But as you as you say, COVID nineteen continues to be, and it has been through the summer. Well, Willingdon Care Home Center is in uh, in Burnaby, and obviously, people in the in your listening audience are concerned with it. We had significant issues at other care homes through the summer, in Interior Health, for example, at the Cottonwoods and others. So, our folks have been keeping uh, been doing uh, an enormous effort. And look, I'm you know. Like everyone else, uh, I have uh, family members in long-term care. I know what it's like when an outbreak happens in long-term care. That's why we, we give it such high priority. Speaking to BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, Minister, let me ask you about another story that's in the news this week, and that is uh, the multiple reports here of people waiting a long time for an ambulance to respond to an emergency 911 call. Let me play a clip here for you from Erin Shute. She is a, a Delta grandmother. Uh, who said her daughter was put on hold when she tried to get an ambulance for her son. Her son cut his foot. He was bleeding. He had to, She drove him to the hospital herself. said he passed out from the loss of blood. Have a listen to this. So she says to me, Mom, I can't get a hold of 911. I keep calling, and it's a busy signal. I finally pull into the yard, and she's carrying him out of the garage. And I just say, you know, we can't wait. Just put him in the car, and I'm going to go to the hospital with him. He was falling asleep. He had lost so much blood that he couldn't really hold his head up. Okay, Minister, there have been multiple reports like this over the last couple of weeks of people waiting a long time for an ambulance. What do you say to them? Well, first of all, if you're Aaron Shute and that's your child, then you're not too concerned about the details of ambulance policy. When you call 911, you want an ambulance. And that's what I want to, uh, you know, over the last number of years, we've massively invested in the ambulance service, which had been underinvested in for a long time. So it's the second largest area in healthcare of investment. We've gone in a very short period of time, a couple of years, from $424 million to $559 million a year, which is a massive increase, which meant hundreds of new paramedics and new ambulances, new air ambulances and other resources. But uh, three things are happening, I think. One, we're making up for underinvestment. Two, we've seen massive numbers of ambulance calls. I think maybe the 25 highest days in history have taken place in the last uh, few months and that obviously has a significant impact so what have we done well we're hiring hundreds of people we're adding cars you know, over the last number of months i think on july 2nd 330 postings went out uh, and then we've added to we're adding more ambulance paramedics and not just in urban dc but we're providing really for the first time in many rural communities 24 7 full-time ambulances uh, in order to provide support there it's taking a while and there is some challenges for, for and a couple of them which i want everyone to consider. One is, you know, there is a primary care challenge. We've seen enormous uh, uptake in our urgent and primary care centers. centers. So a lot of people um, want to see somebody when they need care. And this puts pressure on our emergency rooms. And as you know, our primary care system has been uh, significantly virtual. And so we're slowly working our way back to that. So these steps are being taken. I hear people. We're taking some of the most decisive action we take anywhere in healthcare on ambulances. And I ask people to be patient, but also uh, uh, their expectation is my expectation. When they call 911 and want an ambulance, they should get one. 
But my guest is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix taking your calls on the open line. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Maurice in Kamloops. Hi. Hi, thank you for taking my call. My question to the minister is, I'm an Alberta resident. I work here in BC. I'm also a high-risk individual due to a heart condition. While working here, I wanted to get my vaccine. The government told me that I had to be on a waiting list. And then after all of the individuals in my age group had been vaccinated, then I could get my shot. So what I ended, ended up doing is driving to Jasper, Right away, without an appointment, I got my shot, and I had to do the same thing for my second shot, where here it is so, so difficult. Why is that? Why were you on a waiting list? Because you you live out of the province? Is that what they told That's you? Right. Okay, That's minister. Correct. Yes. minister. And further, further. Well, let's see what the minister has to say here. Go ahead, minister. So, uh, I'm, I'm happy to look into Maurice's situation, but I'd say this. The only reason you'd be on a waiting list is if people in B.C. in your category hadn't got the vaccine yet. Right. So we go through in some categories, we've gone through people by age in some categories where we're clinically vulnerable. We do it more quickly. But uh, we we essentially vaccinate everyone in B.C. who's here. And we've done thousands of vaccinations of Albertans. We've done thousands of vaccinations of people who come here to work. And the reason for that is it doesn't really matter if you're Albertan or B.C. You can still from Alberta or B.C. You can still transmit COVID-19. So. Yeah. He may be admitted on a waiting list because people in B.C. in his circumstances were waiting at that time because of supply. That could be the case. Uh, but mm-hmm. otherwise, uh, I'd be happy to look into the situation. Okay, Maurice, send me, an, send me an email on that if you like. Mike at CKNW.com. Elizabeth in Vancouver. Hi. Hi. Um, uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, Minister Dix, I was just wondering, um, My on Friday, August 13th, uh, Vancouver had the worst air quality in the world due to the smoke. Um, and I uh, I went to my mom's assisted living, and they had a piece of paper saying, keep all your doors open, all that sort of thing. I mean, it was really horrendous. So I called assisted living um, registry, and their investigators are located in Victoria. So she couldn't send somebody actually to this sorry specific uh, assisted living. And I was quite worried about that. I had to send photos and information through email so that they could actually call um, the assisted living place. Um, And that was just one thing of this particular assisted living place that I had to deal with myself here in Vancouver. Was your concern like air quality in the home? Oh, not so much. Like, like Mike, all of the windows were open. I went there and took pictures. All of the windows were open. The air quality was the worst. It was coming in there. My mother has respiratory issues. There was other things about this assisted living place that I actually told um, the registry, but they can't send people over. Okay, okay, Minister. Well, um, prior to my becoming Minister of Health, there was really very little regulation. The uh, caller's correct that... It's a registry in terms of assisted living, which is different, remember, than long-term care, where you're getting care. Assisted living uh, brings with it quite a bit of independence. That said, if there was a problem at the home, uh, we can look into it. And presumably that's what people ask them to ask the caller to do. And I'd be happy to look into it myself. I mean, the, the, issue, the issues in assisted living are not as serious right now with respect to COVID-19, for example. However, it's congregate living. And that's why, for example, people in assisted living homes will also be getting their booster dose in the next uh, very short period. Okay, taking your calls to Health Minister Adrian Dix, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. David in New West, hi. Oh, hello there. Mr. Dix, just a quick question. Uh, As you know, the October 26th uh, deadline is looming for all healthcare workers to be fully vaccinated. 
uh, it's in an already stretched system that is, uh, over, you know, just overrun right now with uh, not enough workers. And I'm just wondering if there's going to be any other options for healthcare workers other than being fully vaccinated, such as a, uh, a rapid test or a PC te- PCR test? Minister? Uh, Dave, it's, it's called mandatory vaccination. It is mandatory vaccination. On the 26th, everyone will be expected to have their first dose. That's good news for people who may be unvaccinated now because they can get their dose and continue using uh, PPE and other things to continue to work. Otherwise, just as in long-term care, and this is very tough, I agree, but this is a brutal COVID-19 virus that doesn't argue with us. Um, we're, everybody is going to be, if they're not vaccinated, if they're unvaccinated, on leave of absence without pay. And the reason for that is what we just discussed, that uh, we've, we continue to see outbreaks in long-term care. We have to protect both our healthcare workers and uh, our patients and residents and people living and whose homes are in assisted living and long-term care, we need to protect them and healthcare workers. And that means that everyone in healthcare needs to be vaccinated. And uh, that's what the mandate says. Do and you? that's what happened on October 12th. I understand the challenge of, of healthcare and keeping uh, staff there. But, but uh, Mike, you'll note, because we were talking about Willingdon, yeah. that more than two dozen staff members are ill as well. And you can yeah. imagine the effect that has on staffing. And we've been dealing with this now for 18 months. And I, I appreciate uh, the concern people have. But if you're working in healthcare right now, you have to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Do you have any concerns, Minister, for any sh- staff shortages once the deadline passes for the first shot? Like we, we remember the, uh, the BC Nurses Union said earlier that they feared this policy would cause the health system to collapse in their words, if you effectively fire unvaccinated nurses, is that is is there any fear of problems with that? Well, I can tell you because I spend you can imagine a lot of time on this question and have been for weeks and weeks and weeks. That it's been a significant challenge over the last week. We've put the system in place. We've put mandatory vaccination in place in long-term care and assisted living. It's been in place for a week. I think our teams are doing an outstanding job. More than 96% of people uh, in those two uh, settings got vaccinated, and we're dealing with it. But look, nothing's easy right now, Mike. Not a single thing is easy. Not a single healthcare site is going through an easy time with this pandemic. And so what I say to everybody, and, I, and this is not just to people working in healthcare, but everybody, get vaccinated. You can, yeah. And uh, you need to do it for your neighbors and your friends, for the healthcare system, for yourself, for your safety. If you're unvaccinated, your risk is high in British Columbia right now with the Delta variant. And we're seeing that. But almost 90% of people throughout the last number of weeks, 90% of people in critical care in our province are not fully vaccinated. Mike, they represent a small minority of the population. This is serious. And I encourage everybody listening to me to get vaccinated and get vaccinated today. Minister, we just have one minute left. What percentage of healthcare workers right now, with this deadline looming, what percentage of those workers are unvaccinated at this point? Do you know? Yeah, pretty close. It's pretty close, uh, we expect, to what it was in long-term care and assisted living. Uh, sorry, those are the bells. I'm in the legislature, Mike. You're familiar yeah, with that. I am. Um, but uh, but uh, we have an absolute survey in long-term care and assisted living, and those numbers were 96 and 97%. Okay. I wouldn't expect acute care to be much different than that. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it.
Hey, anytime. Take care, Mike. Well, let's talk about the chronically clogged and congested Massey Tunnel now. This is one of the worst traffic bottlenecks in the lower mainland. Way and long overdue for replacement. It should have been replaced a long time ago. The current plan right now from the B.C. government, replace the Massey Tunnel with another tunnel. Yeah, they will put another tunnel in the Fraser River. Plan A, remember, was to build a 10-lane bridge over the Fraser River. They even started some of the early construction on that project. The new NDP government scrapped that, put the brakes on it for four years, decided a new tunnel is the way forward instead. Last week, uh, the government released the business case for the new eight-lane tunnel. A lot of it, though, was censored and blacked out including a risk analysis of the project and a value-for-money audit of the project, too. That was all redacted and censored. I think they should release that information to the public. We had a great uh, panel standing by here for you on this. We have both sides of it. But have a listen to this here first. This is Liberal MLA Ian Payton on the show last week saying that building another tunnel is not the right choice. Have a listen. Every engineering report, and I have two major ones in front of me, that ticked all the boxes that a bridge was the better idea, environmentally, cost-wise, all those different things. And suddenly they've decided that um, a tunnel in the bottom of the Fraser River is a better idea. And, um, you know, $4.1 billion versus $2.7 billion that we had uh, to build this 10-lane bridge, which was actually under construction up until the NDP killed it. Okay, Liberal MLA Ian Payton, of course, Rob Fleming, the NDP Transportation Minister, disagrees with that. He disputes some of the costs, and he's been on the show, too, saying that a new tunnel is the better way forward. Okay, let's discuss now. we got both sides of it for you. Diane Watts on the line, former mayor of Surrey, former MP for South Surrey, White Rock. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Diane, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Okay, also on the line is Maria Dobrinskaya. Dobrinskaya, uh, Maria is the BC Director at the Broadbent Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome her back, too. Hi, Maria. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Okay, thanks to both of you for being here. Maria, let me go to you first. You just heard the Liberals there make the case there they should have gone with Plan A and, and built that 10-lane bridge over the, over the river instead of this new tunnel. What do you think? Do you think the government's doing the right thing here, going with a new tunnel instead? Yeah, well, I mean, I would even dispute that the bridge was plan A. If you uh, harken back to 2016, which was when the B.C. Liberal government at the time introduced it, uh, they were actually overriding regional planning that the Metro Vancouver board had already done. And the Metro Vancouver board, comprised of elected officials uh, throughout the region, uh, rejected the, the replacement project uh, for a variety of reasons. They, they said there was insufficient consideration of alternatives to the 10-lane bridge. They cited uh, a lack of integration into the regional growth strategy and the transportation network, all of the regional planning that had already been done, uh, as, as well as ecological disruption to the Fraser River and, uh, and lack of transparency and consultation in regards to uh, the design and business case for the bridge. So um, the, the fact that the, the BC Liberal government came in with this bridge that essentially uh, vetoed regional local planning that, that, and didn't integrate into uh, work that local governments had already done, I think was problematic from the get-go. And so when the NDP government came in in 2017, they recognized uh, that this project wasn't one that, that fit in the region yeah. for a variety of, of reasons, and they commissioned a technical 
um, analysis, an independent technical analysis, uh, which frankly provided a, a, you know, a range of uh, comparisons between the two, the bridge and, and the tunnel, um, yeah. and uh, presented the government with some choices. And they ultimately went uh, with the bridge or with the tunnel, <laughs> rather, right. uh, because they saw it as being a better fit for the regional vision. And, uh, and then that, that okay. was also endorsed then by the Metro Vancouver board. So okay. I think okay. there's a lot of politics going on here for sure but uh, okay. we've arrived at the right place in my all opinion. right well it's, it's certainly going to take a long time to build this thing i mean people are going to be waiting to 2030 before this thing is done whereas the bridge could have been open next year according to the construction timetable but let me go to diane watts and get her thoughts diane what do you think well, I, you know, we look at the congestion for sure, and we have to look at this, uh, you know, back to Maria's point there, you know, she pointed out an, a number of things, but it's a network. This is a transportation network. It's not one piece of infrastructure. So you have to look at the U.S. border crossing. You have to look at port traffic. You have to look at the, the Delta port, South Fraser Perimeter Road. You've got to look at all of that, uh, all of that network and really understand what is required. Now, there's also a lost opportunity when you're talking about replacing the tunnel with a tunnel because uh, Fraser Surrey docks, there are opportunities for expansion, but now we can't do that with the tunnel because the draft is too, uh, too small. So uh, with, the, with the bridge, it would have made a lot more sense to do a number of things there. So allow expansion for Fraser's Surrey Docks. You've got the uh, transportation network and the movement of goods, but you've also got an option to put rapid transit over that bridge. And right. I know that when those uh, discussions were underway, that was one of the things as a former mayor that I really appreciated. Because at the end of the day, you want to reduce congestion, you want to reduce greenhouse gases. Uh, the issue, I think, for most of the mayors was the choke point at the Oak Street Bridge. So there had to be um, a number of mechanisms in place on that front to for uh, streamlining the movement of, of people oh. and goods. Okay, Maria, what what do you say to that point? Because I, this is a crucial one in my mind is the rapid transit component here and the lack of one with this tunnel project, because the way that bridge was designed, you would have been able to put SkyTrain over that thing or light rail transit. You can't do that with this tunnel. I, and I think that's really short sighted. But your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agree with what Diane said in terms of it's not about this single piece of infrastructure. And I think that part of the concerns that um, a number of folks had with the bridge is that it was ultimately going to just shift the congestion to a different part of the region. So that regional planning is 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 critical. Um, there are two dedicated lanes for rapid transit, not for, you know, for rapid bus service. And I think transit takes a variety of forms. Um, and so that is included in the tunnel. But I think that we need, I mean, it also speaks to the fact that we need an expanded transit network throughout the region and focusing um, on one single piece of infrastructure that does not fit in to regional transportation planning um, is not the correct way to do that. Absolutely, there's a massive congestion problem there. I don't think anybody would dispute that. And, and frankly, a lot of these decisions um, are, you know, in terms of uh, alternate transportation planning that doesn't require everybody to be in their cars all the time are ones that should have been made 10 or 20 years ago. And we're now, wow, yeah. uh, you know, 
suffering as a result of that lack of foresight. And in that same vein, we can't continue to build car-based infrastructure and build, you know, build our way out of congestion. Um, so I definitely agree that rapid transit and, and figuring out how to make sure the entire region has access to alternatives to car, uh, to vehicles, um, is is critical i don't think it all needs to happen within the single crossing and i do think the tunnel as it's designed right now does allow for rapid bus which i think is an important piece of that okay well i think people prefer to ride the train though i mean we see the popularity of SkyTrain for a reason and people prefer it you know people don't want to ride a bus you know they want to get on the train they want to get on a (laughs) SkyTrain or an lrt Uh, diane watts let me ask you about the uh environmental component of this because this is another one that's a red flag for me when you start talking about sinking another eight-lane tunnel to the bottom of that river you've got like threatened salmon runs going through there and threatened sturgeon and you're telling me there's not going to be some big environmental war over this like i just see a big fight over this well absolutely you know there's when you when you've got a tunnel and you're disrupting um a riverbed and you're replacing the tunnel there's a lot of work that's going uh going to disrupt the ecosystems there's no doubt about that and that's why I'm saying I mean it's a missed opportunity it's a missed opportunity to have that uh tunnel totally removed it's a missed opportunity for um at grade rail from um you know the south surrey and out that way so i mean there's many missed opportunities and i think it's you know myopic thinking as opposed to uh looking at the entire system and looking you know 10 20 30 years down the road and so i think there's going to be some significant issues and i don't think it's going to um relieve the congestion as everyone's hoping it would be i i don't think that's going to happen maria what do you say to that real quick and then we'll take a break here I just I think there's actually much more considerable ecological disruption to the Fraser River and, and um, agricultural land reserve and areas around there with the bridge uh, as it was proposed. The, br- the bridge so, wasn't even going to touch the river, they said. Well, it was that was cited as a major concern of Metro Vancouver at the time. Um, and and the uh, the technical analysis and even when the Metro board voted on it in, in 2019, to approve it, they saw this as the the less uh, damaging impact. Okay. Without question, both uh, have have significant impact. But I think also what Diane referred to around the expansion of the Delta ports and the need for, for a bridge to to uh, pursue that project is also a, a big piece of this and a big part of the motivation from the previous government in putting a bridge in. So it's not a it, it, it's a bit of a, um, a red herring in my opinion to be arguing about which has. Uh, a more uh, ecological impact. Okay. And I think that the, tech, the technical analysis and variety of other studies point that the tunnel, particularly the way that they're doing it, is le- less disruptive to the surrounding okay. uh, environment. As we continue talking about the chronically clogged Massey Tunnel, my guests are former Surrey Mayor Diane Watts, Maria Dobrinskaya from the Broadbent Institute. Phone lines are open 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Um, Diane, while I have you here as as a former mayor of Surrey, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on this story and the and the CKNW news this today. I, I was kind of shocked by this. There's there's a petition drive going on in the city of Surrey right now over whether they should keep the RCMP or not. People have been putting up lawn signs in the city saying keep the RCMP in Surrey. The Surrey City Council has now effectively outlawed those signs. There are city crews going out and taking down lawn signs. 
that say keep the <laughs> keep the Sur- keep the RCMP in Surrey. Like, is that going too far? I mean, you're a former Surrey mayor. What do you think of that? Well, you know what? I mean, yeah, the battle rages on between the mayor, city council, and the residents, right? Um, you know, it, it, as long as there's signs on private property, they, the bylaw officers cannot uh, cannot take them down. But, you know, suffice to say, I think that you know, within the city, there's some more pressing issues than uh, taking down signs. Well, shouldn't they leave people's lawn signs alone? Uh, oh, yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Okay, I'm just I'm just amazed by that. That's going on in the city of Surrey. Okay, let's continue with uh, Massey Tunnel. Let's go to your phone calls here. Doug on the line in Delta. Hi, Doug. Hey, guys. Hey, my point here is what we need is a new crossing. In other words, an additional crossing. <clears throat> um, Kevin Falcon in 2009, after seismic upgrades, how many millions of dollars spent on the tunnel, said it's now good for 50 years. Yeah. They've just recently redone all the lighting with LED, which is the best it's ever been. <clears throat> so if you recall the ice bombs on the Port Man Bridge, I mean, that even got shut down. So there are times when even... So when you, uh, say, another, when you say another crossing, you mean like leave the tunnel there and then exactly. build something else? So you leave it, and right beside it, there's a street. It's kind of hard to do this over the radio, but if you look on a map, there's an industrial park. If you go to the north end of 62B, which is right where it uh, meets the river. There's an industrial park on the other side of the river with a lot of vacant land. So there's lots of areas to put in the towers and whatnot. Or you connect with the new Highway 17 through the Tilbury Industrial Park to the existing exchange at okay. um, at uh, Nelson Road, and you connect with Highway 91. So then, okay, Maria, what do you goes th- east, half the traffic goes west. You disperse Mar- traffic. Maria, what do you think of that? Oh, I, I would say the caller clearly knows the the area uh, better than I do. Um, what yeah. I'd say, though, is I think that the, the main thing that people want right now is uh, for for a not, for this crossing to get built, right? And so we've seen this back and forth uh, between municipal governments and the provincial government and then a change of provincial governments. We, a, 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 we have a plan. We have a majority government uh, ready to implement that plan. Procurement is happening right now. And I think any, uh, you know, sort of additional adjustments to this will just uh, delay, as I said, planning around transportation in the region that should have been done, you know, over a decade ago. So um, I think that there, the, the main takeaway, though, is that we are not going to be able to build our way out of car-based congestion, and that continues to be apparent. And so um, the expansion of transit uh, opportunities throughout the region is going to be is going to be critical, regardless of what uh, what the crossing um, over the, this the thing- you know the Massey Tunnel looks like. This thing has been going on for so long, and it's been so politicized. And, Maria, I'll agree with you on that. There's a lot of politics that's been going on with this particular project. And I just wonder, Diane Watts, with a a construction timeline that stretches out to 2030, you know, we're going to have another election before there's probably a shovel in the ground here. I mean, who knows? You might get a liberal government in place that goes topsy-turvy again and cancels this thing again. Your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's unfortunate when politics comes into play. And, uh, you know, and I would agree with Maria. I mean, you can't build your way out of congestion. And that's why if we're meant to meet our climate targets, if we're meant to uh, make sure that we're reducing greenhouse gases, you need a rapid transit line 
and across that uh, crossing to get rid of uh, the uh, the congestion, to get rid of the cars and have other options. And as it stands, there are no other options. So this is going to keep going on and on and on again. And it's unfortunate because what suffers are, are uh, you know, the residents suffer for spending so many t- so much time um, in their cars. I mean, movement of good goods gets slowed down. And so there's yeah. there's a number of things here. And, and, you know, we could have been opening this next year. And unfortunately, we're going to wait till 2030. So who knows okay. what's going to happen at that point. Let's talk about the foundation skills assessment test in BC schools now. This is the annual test administered to students in BC to test their skills in reading, writing, mathematics. If you have kids in school, you probably know all about this test administered twice to students, grades four and seven. And this has always been a controversial test, especially with the BC Teachers Federation. And this year is no exception. The Teachers Union this week releasing an open letter to parents urging them to withdraw their children from the FSA, the Foundation Skills Assessment Test. Why is the union doing that? Let's find out. Terry Mooring is my guest, president of the BC Teachers Federation. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Terry, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, why are you encouraging parents to pull their kids out of this test? Well, we've had this uh, campaign going on for a while, and uh, our concerns with it haven't changed. And so one of the most egregious outcomes, I think, of the FSA is that the data is used by outside groups, and it's enabled to be used, it's available, um, to undermine public education. In other words, ranking schools um, according to achievement on the FSAs, which has been really discredited. But it's still something that happens. Uh, FSA results are used in the sales of real estate, for example. And um, inevitably, the same thing happens where uh, independent schools that, you know, don't necessarily accept all students from all walks of life um, are, you know, typically rank very high on the FSAs and public schools typically rank um, fairly low. And this year we wanted to raise some awareness around, you know, the impact that has on families, students, and teachers that actually work in the schools that uh, tend to rank low through no fault of their own. Right. So I believe it's the Fraser Institute, right, that puts out this annual ranking of schools based on how kids have done on this FSA test. And you're right. I mean, you take a look at that list every year. It's invariably private schools that are at the top of the list and uh, public schools lower down, particularly in maybe in some lower income parts of British Columbia and stuff, which I don't know, in some ways, is to, isn't that sort of to be expected or normal? Like if you've got kids that are coming from wealthy families that quite often they're coming from, you know, more stable families, they do well in school, whereas compared to, say, kids in an inner city public school who may have a lot of other challenges in their life, yeah, they they might do worse in school, right? It it is inevitable, and so one wonders, why why does this happen then? Uh, Like, what's the motivation? And and we think that we know what the motivation is. Um, What, what is is, What is the motivation? 
to undermine public education <laughs> yeah. and to show that private is better. Um, of course, we don't agree with that. We uh, fully believe in public education, opening the doors to all students, and, and that's a, and a really important tenant of our society. And so, um, you know, we have some other concerns, however, about the FSAs. Um, you know, schools that tend to rank low uh, don't, there, there's nothing that happens in order to rectify that. And so we also have some ethical considerations around, you know, um, schools where students perhaps aren't doing that well. Um, simply identifying that is not good enough. There needs to be um, steps taken to rectify that, including additional funding for additional supports. And so it's no surprise okay. that some of these schools will need additional counselor support, additional learning support, teachers support. And, you know, th those things just don't happen. Um, there's also a danger of over-promising what these tests can do. And, and I would note that the um, l a letter that went home from the deputy minister to families this year, you know, contains some information that we take exception to. Um, mm. It's inaccurate. Uh, and, uh, you know, what is happening is that there aren't positive outcomes to t taking the assessment. Okay. Now, have, having said all that, uh, yeah. we're not against um, system-wide checks uh, in any way. We think they need to be revised. We started mm. this conversation with government in 2014 very seriously, and yeah. no changes were made. Okay, um, let, let me ask you. Let me ask you this, Terry. Like I've got two kids who have gone through the public school system, and I still got one son in high school, and they've both done these these tests. And I didn't have any, as a parent, like I didn't have any problems with these tests. Like my kids were not stressed out about these tests. Like I've heard from some other parents who say their kids were got anxiety because of this test. You know, my kids didn't have any problem with it. And personally, as a parent. I, I really didn't have a, any problem with, you know, the schools testing my kid to see if my kid is, can read and write. Like, you know, why not? Go ahead and test my kid. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Like, we don't have, uh, we're not taking exception with system-wide checks in and of themselves. This particular uh, test is, is misused and, and it's not working for its intended purpose. Um, however, you know, we, we do think that that can change. Uh, we have had meetings with the current government and are optimistic that changes will be made. Um, and, you know, that there are a lot of kind of misconceptions about the FSAs, including that they may deliver a lot more information than they actually do. Well, a, teacher, a teacher's classroom teacher... Our, yeah. a, a child's classroom teacher knows them best, has the best quality information if, if families are uh, concerned about their child's progress. Okay, well, I asked the government for some information on these tests and what they're used for, and this is what they told me, Terry. They said that the, the education ministry is committed to collecting and analyzing the data collected in these tests, and then the tests are used to improve schools, to make better decisions for students with daily planning, early interventions if a test uh, shows that a kid's in trouble, additional supports for, ch for students, as well as for adopting, and, uh, adapting the curriculum as a result of these tests. So that's what the government says, the, the ministry says this, these tests are for. You're not buying that? You're saying that they, it's not used for that? 
it's just not factual. In other words, we're not sitting around as teachers waiting for students to score on the FSA to say they need additional support. And to think that's the case is absolutely ridiculous. The other well, issue not is... The on- well, I don't think the government would be saying that, that the FSA is the only reason, the only intervention tool for a kid who's struggling. It's just one tool. But right. it's not. But it's not one. In other words, no additional supports or funding flows based on how children do on the FSAs. It doesn't happen. That's not how it works. Um, and so mm. that that part is just not accurate. And if funding did flow based on how students did on the FSAs, you know, that would be a completely different conversation. But that's not what happens. And so, you know, what does happen is the FSAs are used by districts in their own planning. Um, The problem with that is that a lot of districts a long time ago ended that practice because they knew that the tests weren't a good indication of how students were doing generally because, you know, students were opting out or, you know, it it just wasn't an effective tool because it has become too politicized. Mm. What about the... uh the, the BC's independent representative for children and youth, and also the First Nations Education Steering Committee, which the ministry says sees these tests as an important tool for equity and quality of education across the province, especially for Indigenous kids. Like, if you've got the First Nations Education Committee saying, like, look, we support these tests and we think they're valuable why why would we doubt that well and we do understand the need uh for, to collect data on how students are doing especially um first nation students and students who might be children in care you know and vulnerable students generally that's why we're saying we don't object to the data collection and, and kids doing tests. We object to these particular tests because they have been misused and and aren't reliable any longer because a lot of students don't do them anymore. And so we are interested in working with government and have had a first meeting with government along with the other stakeholders to have a conversation about how things can change and how hmm. a system-wide check, you know, similar to an FSA, can be used to effectively assess uh, assess how this how the system is doing, um, especially since we have a curriculum that has been in place for a number of years now. There is a lot of value okay. in ensuring that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's just not this particular test, and so we're hoping now, at long last, we can make some uh, ne- needed changes. Okay, it's an issue we continue to follow closely. Terry, thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Thanks so much, Mike. Let's talk about aggressive coyotes attacking people now. And no, I'm not talking about Stanley Park this time. We had, what, more than 50 coyote attacks in the park over the past year until they finally, finally did something about it. They did that coyote cull in the park. Seems to have stopped the attacks there. But my next guest says her son had a scary encounter with some coyotes yesterday in West Vancouver. Coralyn Gale. She's a mom in West Van. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Coralyn, thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, Mike. Hi, thanks for doing this. So I saw your post yesterday on Twitter about this. Tell me what happened to your son yesterday. This sounds crazy. Uh, Honestly, it was insane. He left just before eight in the morning to walk to the bus. And within three or four minutes, he came charging back through the door, hyperventilating. And he said there was a coyote. So my first thought, of course, was, you see coyotes all the time. You're fine. What's wrong? And 
he managed to get out that there were five of them and they had followed him all the way up the street to the driveway. So he had gone out, left the house, gone down the driveway and like a 13 year old kid was looking at his phone, not paying attention to his surroundings. And when he looked up, he could see well down a little bit past the bottom of our street, four coyotes who were just standing completely still staring at him. So he stopped panicked. And as he watched a fifth came out of the bush and started coming towards him and the other four followed. And then, so then he, what he ran home. Then he did exactly what you're not supposed to do. He turned around and sprinted home. Yeah. And in the time it took him to get home, and he wasn't far from the house, yeah. they came all the way up from below the bottom of our street. And he said just as he came in the house, he turned and looked, and he saw one right at the bottom of the driveway. Whoa. Did you see it? I did not see yeah. it. We, yeah. um, My husband went down and just to scare them away if they were still there. He talked with a dog walker who had seen a few of them just a few minutes before. Oh, my goodness. So five coyotes, basically, like, were they running? They were chasing your son. I think if they were sprinting, they would have caught him. Yeah. I I suspect they were stalking him Mm. to sort of get around him. Uh, He he said they were were basically jogging behind him. I mean, yeah, they chased him. Gee whiz. Okay, how would it how did that affect him? Oh, he was completely panicked. He's just yeah. started grade eight, so he's just started walking by himself to take the bus to school and we've had lots of talks about what to do when you see a bear. In fact, last month he saw a bear and wasn't able to walk up the street because it was in the right in the middle of the road on his way home. Totally fine. It had never crossed my mind to tell him what to do when you see a pack of coyotes because it just doesn't happen around here. Yeah, like this is the thing, like, you know, like you say, I mean, people, you'll see coyotes in urban settings, especially in West Vancouver with a lot of nearby wilderness. So I guess that's not unusual. I mean, have you have you seen coyotes around there before? Absolutely. We see them yeah. on a regular basis. He sees them on a regular basis. Right. But generally they bolt as soon as they see a person, which is what they're supposed to do. So Right, right. That's we were, my- that's my experience, too. Anytime I've ever seen one, they, they turn tail and run. I mean, they, they seem more scared of us than, than, than we of them. But in this case, I mean, this is basically a pack of coyotes. You're talking five, and you're talking a, a pack there. I have lived in areas with coyotes my entire life. I lived in Coquitlam before here, and in the interior before that, there have always been coyotes, and I've never seen five together. Yeah. And so when they were kind of, like you said, stalking your son and kind of jogging after him, I mean, how do you, have you ever seen anything like that before? I mean, it sounds aggressive. No, and he's yeah. not, it might have made sense if it were a small animal. I mean, he's 13. He's not tiny. He's too big for them to have wanted to follow. Like, all of it is alarming. Speaking to Coraline Gale, she's a West Vancouver mom about her 13-year-old son who was a... Uh, yeah, I had an encounter with a pack of coyotes on his way to school yesterday. So, um, did he eventually <laughs> did he eventually go back and get the bus after the after the coast oh, no. was clear? No, 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 no. No one was doing that. I drove okay. him to school yesterday. Yeah. Um, and this morning, I and our German Shepherd walked him to the bus stop. <laughs> I think we'll be doing that for a few more days. Yeah. Yeah. And Holy smokes! Okay. Did you phone? Um, did you phone anyone? You phone the conservation service or anything? 
We did. We called conservation. Um, I actually called 911. It is not normally a 911 situation. But in this case, it was right at the time where kids would be heading towards West Bay Elementary School. So I was really concerned. I I called the West End Police and asked if they could send a car to just have a presence while the little kids were walking. Mm -hmm. So they were great. They showed up right away. We called conservation. I heard back yesterday afternoon from an officer who explained that it's a complete anomaly. He said it's not something he's ever even heard of on the North Shore. So they're going to keep an eye on it. And and what they really need to do is anytime anyone has an interaction with a coyote that's unusual, they need them to call conservation and let them know so they can figure out if this is a pattern or just a really bizarre one-off situation. Right. And I think you did the right thing there calling the conservation service to let them know for sure. I mean, were you satisfied with the response that you received there? Well, I mean, as a mom whose child had been followed by five coyotes i'll be honest i wanted someone to come and set some traps and get rid of them but realistically i understand they didn't touch him it's a one-time thing that's not going to happen um i i did really want them to know that it had occurred and i wanted to know if it had happened before if it was something that was happening right and they said that and they said this was sounded unusual they hadn't heard of this before yeah. yeah, and it, okay. it doesn't help. I mean, Hunter did, he triggered a prey drive by running. Yeah, right. Right, we we understand that, but we're still really bothered by the fact that they were coming towards him in the first place. Yeah, and, um, you know, living in West Vancouver is such a beautiful part of the, the the region, and there's a lot of wilderness around. Like you mentioned, there's bears around, there's coyotes around, right? I mean, is that is that kind of part of life living there? You're going to see yeah. wildlife around? Absolutely. The street I live on, we've had cougars walk through the cul-de-sac. Whoa, whoa. (laughs) We get it. It happens. It's when the wildlife starts behaving in a way that they don't normally behave. I think that's something that needs to be paid attention to. Right. Okay. I I hope your son's okay. He's not shaking up too bad. Thanks uh, Thanks for sharing the story today. Appreciate it.